All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be together. Sorry about getting sick last week. I heard Trav did a really good job. Yeah, good job, Trav. <laughs> so this is like a strange thing often, right? Like a lot of thoughts and emotions maybe, questions. Um, but what we are about to do is uh, so profound. This is a spiritual discipline that we need to do every day. Uh, when we have a lot going on, the, there's, the best thing is to... Uh, look to Jesus and to his word and look to what is true and um, even like uh, take our thoughts captive. So you know I'm going to like think about that later. Right now I'm going to look at Jesus and his word. Like this is what like spiritual maturity is every day. Like I got a lot going on. Jesus, I don't know uh, how to fix this thing. I don't know about this relationship, but I'm going to open up your word and I want to hear from you. And I trust that even this next text in your word uh, is for me and is food for me and it nourishes me and it comforts me and encourages me. And it maybe even helps me see my uh, small problems uh, in a more clear way. And so that's what we're going to do together. Uh, We're going to continue on in the book of John. We are in John chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 1 through 12 together. The title of this sermon is When the, when the Wine Runs Out. Uh, so let's read that text together and get into the Word of God. And these funny things happen, right? You're like, okay, I never thought of it like that before. Uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading out of the ESV. You guys ready to hear from God? Yeah, amen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of God. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, we thank you that in any season, in any circumstance, we have a place to go. We have a rock that is higher than us. We have a sure foundation. We have truth. We have your word that feeds us and nourishes us and leads us and guides us and corrects us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you use your word like a sword 
to do work in our souls and, and to above all to just glorify Jesus. So we ask that you would, you would put Jesus on display right now. Lord, we, we all, all of us, came here this morning with our own thoughts and concerns, our own trials and problems. Uh, maybe many of us are in a situation where it's like the wine has run out, or uh, our own finances are running dry, or our work is running dry, or our health or our relationships are strained. And so right now, together, as an act of worship and trust, we turn to you, Christ, and we turn to your word and to your promises, and we ask that you would show us yourself in ways that we've never seen before. If we're so familiar with this story, would we believe it's living and active, and your spirit is able to apply it to us individually and us corporately uh, just the way that we need it. So would you do that this morning? And Lord, I just want to also thank you for this trial that our church is in for this season, as your word teaches us. I uh, even just felt your joy this morning in that first set of worship like I haven't in a long time, and I know you are caring for your church, and you are caring for your bride, and you see it, and you are working in us endurance and steadfastness and character and hope. And I believe, Jesus, that you are working at uh, far deeper levels than just like financial, like that you're up to stuff. You are doing a thing, Lord, in and through us. And so we just surrender ourselves to this season. You lead into valleys of the shadow of death, and we don't need to fear because you are with us. And your rod and your staff, they comfort us. So, so would you, uh, your rod discipline where it needs disciplining, and would it comfort where it needs comforting, and correct where it needs correcting, and lead and guide and protect your people as you have done since the beginning of time? We trust you, Jesus. Where else would we go but to you and your word? So speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I feel like I'm done, honestly, but um, okay, help us, Lord, help us. So when, when we approach the Bible, uh, we are often coming with a particular like need, Right, like uh, it's been a stressful day, or we're we're having a difficult circumstance, and so we often like open the Bible, and we're like, "Gosh, God, just show me something, give me something, just help me, sustain me." Uh, we often do that when we come to church, right? We're like, "I got a lot going on, and if I could just like get something today, just a little something that would help me get through my needs, be it health or relationships or addictions or depression or financial, whatever it is. Like we often approach the Bible and we often approach church. Like I just, just get me, just sustain me, just get me like one more day. And that's right. That is a good thing. Um, but, but that is not all that we should do. So my dad is a physical therapist and people come to him all the time with like aches and pains, right? And and my dad knows, okay, there's like a quick fix, right? Like, okay, yeah, you take this pill or you just do this one thing and like it'll kind of go away. Or there's like the deeper problem going on. And generally, people don't want to hear that deeper problem. People don't want to like do like the whole life adjustment. They just kind of like just take this away. Um, now, now, you can come to the Bible and you can come to church and you can find a quick fix. 
You can get like an emotional, like, oh, okay, that felt good and I feel better. And, and, you know, maybe you just have your favorite 100 Bible verses and that's just what you just cycle through until it feels better and then you kind of move on. And it's, it's so often to treat Jesus like a quick fix. Uh, this is, I do this every day, I'll be honest. Jesus, just take it away. Just remove this situation. Just fix it. But Jesus is too good a physician of the soul to only give us quick fixes. If you spend time with him, you know that he begins to like go after like deeper issues in our heart. We approach him to please help me with this situation and he's like, actually, let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about your character. Let's talk about your idols. Let's talk about where you're making sacrifices where you're giving your soul, what are you putting your hope in? And you're like, ah, well, I just kind of want to feel better right now, Jesus. And he loves us enough to go deeper. Now, the 12 verses before us this morning may appear to be a scenario where uh, this wedding is in a bind and Jesus shows up and he's like, quick fix, thank you very much, lots of wine, moving on. Um, and... Uh, I just want to encourage us. In fact, I, I want to exhort us. That is not what is going on in this text. And we know that from, look, at, look ahead to verse 11. This verse tells us how to understand this story and all the miracle stories in the book of John. Verse 11 begins, it says this. This is the first of his, and what is that next word? Signs. John calls this story a sign. Uh, this is also history. It really happened. But what John is telling us is there's something deeper going on here than Jesus just providing a quick fix. There's something deeper he's addressing. Uh, throughout the book of John, there are seven or eight signs. And, and you don't kind of get like willy-nilly miracles in John. You get seven or eight specific times where Jesus performs what John calls a sign, and it is to reveal truth, glory, like deep things about Jesus. That's how the verse ends. Look at verse 11 again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. See, Jesus, this is maybe strange to hear, maybe offensive to hear, but he has deeper concerns than our problems. It is his glory. It is his glory. And he ordains suffering so that he can get glory. We see it explicitly in John 11 when Lazarus is sick and his sisters are like, Jesus, come. And Jesus doesn't go. And he waits until Lazarus dies. And why does he do that? It explicitly says this does not end in death. This is for my glory to be put on display. We need a deeper lens to think through our problems. Jesus is concerned with his glory. And he is concerned that his disciples see his glory and believe in him and deepen their trust in him. Because troubles will come. Oh, do they come and they come and they come. 
And the one thing that will get you through it is not the hope that maybe he'll just fix it, but a deep sense of the glory and majesty and person and purposes of Jesus. That's what's going to get you through. So that is what is going on in this text. And we're going to work through it, uh, essentially just read through verse by verse. And there are four truths about Jesus that we're going to see here. And let me just tell you, as we see the glory of Jesus, it will, in this profound way, address our temporary problems in a far more significant way than we would ever think and expect. When we begin to worship Jesus and be concerned about his glory, our, our problems begin to fall into place. And our perspective gets right. And we can even pray like we see the saints do in the Bible. Thank you, God, for this trial. Thank you. I trust you. You're producing something in me. So let's look again. Let's start at verses one and two where we'll see the first truth about Jesus. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Uh, it begins on the third day. John has this kind of like a third day theme going on. If you look backwards to the beginning of like the paragraphs, it's like the next day, the next day, the next day. John is giving us the first week of the ministry of Jesus. This is either day six or seven of the first week of Jesus's public ministry. And then we read that the, you know, one of the first things he does in his public ministry is with his mother and his disciples, they all go to a wedding in this small town called Cana in Galilee. It was about 10 miles away from his hometown. And it's likely from later details that this was a close relative or friend of the family. Mary seems to have some responsibilities at this wedding. We think it's very likely a relative of Jesus. And here we already see the first glorious truth about Jesus, and it's this. Jesus displays his glory in ordinary life. The very first miracle Jesus ever performed was not at a worship service or a prayer meeting, but a local wedding in a small town. And maybe seven to 10 people saw it. Jesus is not just for Sundays, not just for your morning, your morning devotionals. He is for conversations you are having at your lunch break. He is for arguments with a spouse. He is for hospital waiting rooms and late night moments of temptation. Jesus is for all of our ordinary life. And it's also significant that this is a wedding because if you, if you think back to John the Baptist who we've been studying, and, and really if you think to most of the Old Testament prophets, what distinguished them as men of God was their separation from ordinary affairs of life. You think of the prophets out in the woods, wilderness, dress weird, doing weird things. If you're in the Bible reading plan, Ezekiel is doing some weird stuff for a long time. You're like, Really, that's what a prophet is to do? That's what distinguishes these Old Testament prophets. 
John the Baptist performed his ministry in the wilderness, but Jesus starts his ministry at a wedding. That's profound. He's different. He wants to be involved in the ordinary events of life, in small towns with a few people. And notice in verse two, it says Jesus was invited to the wedding. Uh, in those days, a wedding was put on by the groom and his family. Uh, it was often, it could be up to a week long party. And this, uh, this, well, in many ways is a foolish groom as we're gonna see. He did not prepare, but he did one thing right. Do you know what he did right? He invited Jesus to his wedding. Listen, if you do one thing right, just bring Jesus to the wedding. Now, now let me ask you seriously, is, is Jesus invited into your daily activities? Is he invited? And let me assure you, if you invite him, he will come. And oh, how he will surprise you. Where do you need to invite Jesus right now into your life? your private life, into your public life, into your celebrations, into your problems? Where are you keeping him out? Uh, if the groom also did something, he invited Jesus before he had a problem, right? Often we go to Jesus when, when we have a problem. But this is profound. Keep Jesus in your ordinary life. Invite him in to your commute and your conversations and your arguments. Literally, like, stop an argument and just pray for a second. Just try that. Uh, the next thing we see is in verses three through four. Let's read this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, first of all, it's, it's difficult for us to appreciate like the gravity of the situation where we're so far culturally removed from ancient Palestine. Uh, but, but two things. Number one, this is, a, this is a culture that valued hospitality to the extent that if a wedding ran out of proper food and drink, the groom was liable to a lawsuit. That was the culture. He could be sued because you showed up at the wedding and there's no wine. That was literally the case. Secondly, this was a shame culture where a family's reputation was very important. And, and the future of this new family, this new couple, their whole reputation was in jeopardy at the very beginning of their, of their life together if this wedding went wrong. Like this was a big deal. This was a big problem for this groom. Now, it was likely Mary was serving at some capacity because she knew about the problem before others knew about the problem. And it's also, this is interesting, we often, we read too far ahead into the details. It's, it's, it's not likely that she's asking Jesus to do a miracle because he hasn't done any miracles yet. It explicitly says in verse 11, this is his first miracle. She's never seen him do a miracle. Uh, and, and so it's not likely she's saying, hey, Jesus, it's time, you know, time to turn the water into wine. Like, she's never heard of that story before. She's just in a rough spot. And, and, and commentators largely agree it's likely what's going on here is that Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, was dead. 
He doesn't show up in any of the Gospels as a living character, only at the beginning. And that would mean that Mary would have begun to depend on her firstborn son as a carpenter. He would be the leader of the family. He would be the provider of the family. And as we know, he was likely a pretty good one. He was probably pretty reliable and pretty trustworthy. And so, so, so his mom learned to trust in Jesus. And so she, at the very least, is just letting her firstborn son know, like, hey, we have a problem here. Like, I have some kind of duties. There's no wine. And she's just doing what she's learned to do. She's like, Jesus, what do we do? They have no wine. Now, it is at this moment, this is so significant. We see the next truth about Jesus. This is so important. Jesus transforms our concerns into his concerns. Often, as we have been saying, we bring a concern to Jesus only to discover he is he's at work at a deeper level. Our hearts and our character and our faith. And he uses these problems and concerns that we bring to him to go to work on the deeper concerns of our hearts. And, and we see him doing this in three ways in his response, okay? This is, it's is like loaded, it's profound. The first thing he does is he doesn't call her mother, he calls her woman. Now, Fonre, you laughed because that was the appropriate, like, what are you saying? You just called your mom woman? Um, that, that, that's significant. Um, that word, it's, it's, it's a courteous word, but it's a formal word. It's, it's equivalent to ma'am. So it's not quite as harsh as maybe it comes off in English like, woman, what are you doing? It's more like ma'am or, or even dear woman. But the, the, point is, it's, the point is it wasn't mother. And that's significant because hear this, in this very moment, for the first time in 30 years, something fundamental has shifted in their relationship. Jesus has just begun his public ministry. He's been baptized. He's been blessed publicly by the Father. He's been anointed by the Spirit. And in, hear this, in this single word, woman, Jesus is telling his own mother that she is no longer to relate to him as her son, but as her Messiah and her God. He's saying, I am now over you. I am your savior. This is a new relationship. I am your God. Uh, theologian D.A. Carson puts it this way. I think we have this quoted for you. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. He's saying, you're coming to me as a mom seeking help from her son, but I'm reframing this. You're actually coming to me as a believer in your savior. First thing he does, he's like, no, we have it was a different relationship. The second thing he does is look what he goes on to say to her. He says, what, in verse four, what does this have to do with me? Uh, this is like a, it's an idiom. It's like an expression. It's, it doesn't translate exactly. The New King James 
communicates it pretty well. It, it, the New King James says, what does your concern have to do with my concern? That's what he's getting at. He's saying, your concern right now is this wedding. That's different than my concern. You have a concern. It's a valid concern. Significant. But my concern is different. What does this, this problem at a wedding, have to do with me? And again, we don't know exactly what Mary's concern is. Maybe she's, maybe she's concerned about a family friend getting embarrassed. Maybe she's even somehow feeling responsible. Like maybe she's somehow like didn't plan well. We don't know exactly her concern, but we know Jesus has a deeper concern going on. He, he, he is concerned about something else. He's getting deeper. And then look at the third thing he says to her. We get insight into Jesus' concern when he says this, my hour has not yet come. That is an expression, my hour, that he uses throughout the book of John. And, and it's referring to his death and his resurrection. So in some strange way, Mary is saying, I have this concern, this wedding, it's a problem. And Jesus says, first of all, as your God, my concern is different than yours. And, and on Jesus' mind is his death and resurrection. And what he's telling his mom is, is though she's concerned with a relatively small problem at a wedding, Jesus is concerned with displaying his glory. He's transforming her small concern into a deeper concern. He is using her concern as an opportunity for her to see more of his glory. And you know what's amazing? Seems like she gets it. It seems like she understands. And, and she certainly doesn't know what he's going to do, but her response is significant. Look what she says in verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's some really good advice. She is saying, <laughs> she is saying, I don't know what he's gonna do, but I see now that he is, he's up to something. And I see now that I don't have the right over, his, over him as a mom would. He is my God. And so I'm gonna submit and surrender my concerns to Jesus. And she entrusts her problems to him. Even though she doesn't even see the solution. Gosh, that is so profound. Even when we don't see the solution, we are called to surrender our concerns over to Jesus. And we are also to do whatever he says. That's what we do. We don't sin. We don't try to fix our concerns with our own strength, with our own wisdom. We trust him. We surrender our rights over Jesus to fix our problems. We say, no, I am concerned with you and your glory and I trust you are at work in my life. So I surrender my concerns to you and I will do whatever you say. I will obey you even if I don't understand. This is, this is a cheap shot. I'm sorry, but it's just a cheap shot that I have to take. Here's a typical one. You got this couple who's engaged and they don't have a lot of money. And they think, you know what, we have, to, we have to live together. There's just no other way. 
uh, let me just say, just do what Jesus says. And maybe he'll, he'll, maybe he'll care for you. Maybe sin isn't your only option. Maybe anxiety and stress and coping and all the places we go, maybe we can surrender these concerns and obey Jesus, especially in these moments. And so Mary surrenders her concerns and uh, we're gonna see what happens. Let's read now verses six through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, first thing, these six stone water uh, jars were used for purification. You know, Jews uh, had to be concerned about being clean. To worship at the temple, they had to be ceremonially clean. And so everywhere you go, there'd be these water jars made of stone because stone was, it was pure, it didn't get unclean. And so they'd probably be washing all the dishes with these stone jars. If you were a guest, you're probably washing your hands and your feet. It was a concern for a Jew to remain uh, ceremonially clean. And so these six water jars are just there serving the needs of the wedding. And Jesus has the servants top them off. They would have been like, you know, drawing water from them throughout the week. And so he's like, I want you to fill them up. I want you to fill them up to the brim. This is, this is uh, similar to that. Remember that miracle Elijah did with all the, the prophets on the top of the mountain? And they said, okay, let's each set up an altar and let's see whose God answers with fire. And then before it was Yahweh's turn, he's like, just dump, just put so much water on it. Make it like impossible for God to do this. It's, it's, it's kind of similar to that. And, and do you know what's amazing though is Jesus doesn't, he doesn't touch the water. He doesn't even command the water. Apparently, he simply just like willed the water to change to wine. He just has the power and authority as the creator God to just think about something and it happens. And so he turns these six large water jars into wine and not just like enough wine. This is between 750 to 900 bottles worth of wine. That's a lot of wine. Uh, now, it's at this point, probably worth pausing for a second. Let's have a little chat about wine. Um, <laughs> if you read commentaries of responses throughout church history, it's so fun because you're just, it's just makes people uncomfortable as you know, is understandable. Now, now I, I want to think rightly and biblically about alcohol for a quick minute. When it comes to alcohol, we must say no more and no less than what God has said in his word. On the one hand, the Bible speaks of wine as a gift from God to cheer the heart of man. That's in your Bible. Uh, that is what is on display here. In this miracle, Jesus gifts this couple a large quantity of wine. On the other hand, the Bible also speaks absolutely clearly that drunkenness is a sin. And it even recommends abstinence in many 
situations. That's how we should think about alcohol. Close, case closed. Uh, now, we need to not miss the main focus. What is this story here? What is the point of this story? Is it just Jesus gives us a lot of wine? Is that the point? No, this is a sign. This is a sign displaying the glory of Jesus. And we got to ask again, what is this saying about Jesus? How does this function as a sign about Jesus? And that's our, our we have two, two ways, two more ways. And, and the third one is this. Jesus gives lavish grace where it is least deserved. This groom rightly, rightfully deserved public humiliation. He blew it. He invited all these people and he ran out. He couldn't prepare them. He rightfully deserves a lawsuit. And yet, he gets credit for something he didn't even do. In fact, he didn't contribute to it at all. In fact, he, he deserved the opposite, and now he's getting credit for this 900 bottles worth of wine at this party. His guests went on to enjoy that wine, and he would receive the credit. Commentators also think it is unlikely that all of that wine could even have been consumed. And it is likely that this was a very generous, lavish wedding present that Jesus was giving to this couple. They would have had wine for a long time or they could have sold it. This was a lavish, undeserved gift where it was least deserved. Now, guys, we have been far more foolish than this groom. We have walked in sin and rebellion against God. And we deserve all the shame and humiliation for it. And the Bible's clear, we deserve eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. And yet Jesus went to the cross to die for our sin, took away our shame, took away hell for us, that whoever would trust him would not only be forgiven, church, they would be lavished with love in mercy, lavished, richly lavished with grace that we do not deserve. An eternal inheritance as the people of God. And no matter what foolish choices you have made, you can come to Jesus and receive grace beyond measure. And do you know what else that means? That means we got to be able to show grace to others. We have been given a gift far better than 900 bottles of wine. And, and think about how we maybe treat and speak to and have the attitude towards one another. Legitimate offenses. We've been hurt. We've been wronged. We've been gossiped about, whatever it may be. But when we compare what someone has done to us with what we have done to an eternally holy God, it's, it's a joke. It's a joke. We have been lavished with grace and with mercy. And this is why Jesus says, listen, if you have a problem with somebody, you know what you need to do first? You need to look at your own log in your eye. Yeah, they got a speck, but remember what God has done for you. Remember, meditate on what you really deserve and the grace he has lavished on you. And then for sure you'll be able to like humbly, gently 
like help another brother get the speck out of their eye. That should be our attitude as people who have received immeasurable grace from Jesus. And the last thing this this, this sign says about Jesus is this. Jesus is the source of lasting joy. He's the source of lasting joy. And we see this in two ways in the text. First of all, we see it as as we know, Jesus is, 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 is thinking about his hour. Remember, my hour has not yet come. He's thinking about his death and his resurrection. And if you remember what that means, it, it means Jesus is thinking about the day when he would purchase for himself his own bride. And he's thinking about the day when he is going to come for his bride, the church. Uh, this is a theme all throughout scripture. We know that marriage itself is a sign of Jesus' love for his people. Look at Isaiah. I, I, I don't think I highlighted it. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, it says this. As a young man marries a young woman, and as the bridegroom rejoices, hear that word, rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know, there's no deeper joy than a relationship with Jesus. There just isn't. There's no deeper place. There's no deeper source. There's, there's nothing better. And the other way we see this as a sign about Jesus as lasting joy is, is through the wine metaphor. Throughout the Bible, wine is used to depict gladness and joy, and it's specifically used to depict the joy of the people of God when God returns for his people. You, you see it in all kinds of prophets. I'm, I'm just going to read you one passage out of Jeremiah 31. This is the chapter that's describing the new covenant. It's a prophecy about the day that Jesus comes for us. And just look at a little chunk of this out of Jeremiah 31. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. You see, life in this world is like the wedding in John 2. The wine runs out. The best wine served first. And then the day comes when that wine's gone. Maybe you'll get a little bad wine to just hold you over. The best that this world has to offer you is eat and drink and try your best to be merry for tomorrow you will die. And it is not so with Jesus. You know what? With Jesus like this wine, the best is last. Do you know that? Do you know that it's going to get better for eternity? As Travis told us last Sunday with Jesus, our future is incredibly bright. We will be in his presence 
for all of eternity in the fullness of joy. He is a fountain that never runs dry. And in his presence is, is, is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy may make you glad for a moment and then it runs out. But with Jesus, it is lasting, eternal, increasing joy. And now we know that Jesus displayed this kind of glory in this moment for a reason, so that you may believe in him. And his disciples saw this, these little like, these little glimmers of his glory, and it deepened their, their trust in him. And, and this text asks us the same question, do you do you believe in him? Do you believe these things? Have you trusted in him? Have you seen this kind of glory? And if not, then this morning, come to him and cry out to him and bring your concerns to him and believe in him and you will find everlasting life. Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no one like you. You are the source of ever-increasing pleasure and joy. Jesus, I ask that you would press your word onto our hearts where we need it most, that you would lift our sorrows and our heads to see your glory, to taste your presence and your joy. Jesus, I ask that we would all together continually bring our concerns to you and we would surrender them to you and we would trust that you are at work in something far more significant than even what we see. Like Mary, we, we don't even, we can't even imagine what it is you're going to do. And it's going to be far better than anything we could try and come up with ourselves. Jesus, I thank you that you are concerned with our ordinary lives and problems. You, you lead us to yourself. And so as your people, as a church, together right now, we, we want to come to you. We want to take a posture of humility and praise and thanksgiving and worship. You are worthy. You're more than enough. That's such an understatement. You are more than enough for us as a church. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will provide for us. And far more important, you will transform us into the image of Christ. So we say, have your way in us, Jesus. Have your way. As we wait on you as a church in this season, would you have your way? We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we will have a prayer team for this second set of worship. If you have concerns, uh, you can go to one another, but we would especially encourage you to come up to both sides of the stage and to get prayer. Um, one more thing. This is, I saved this nugget for communion. Those six water jars were for cleansing. The Jews, again, were concerned with cleansing. And this was like external cleansing. And when Jesus came, he, he changed the way that we are cleansed. 
we no longer wash our hands and our feet and be ceremonially clean. Uh, and that wine that he, he, that he made, we know later wine represents his blood. And we know that as we are sprinkled with his blood, we are really cleansed and we are really purified. And we're not just like externally purified. We are like cleansed from the inside out. Our consciences are cleansed. Our guilt is cleansed. We are purified. And also we know on the cross, Jesus tasted literally some bitter wine. And we know more profoundly, he drank the bitter cup of the wrath of God. So if you trust in him, you every week as we come together in worship can taste the sweet juice and you can remember that he tasted bitterness so that you can have eternal sweetness in life with Jesus. And so if you've trusted in him and if you've believed in him, uh, the Bible says examine yourself, confess your sins, get your heart right on Christ and remember what he has done for you. This is not some external ritual that cleanses the outside. This is a sign of internal, like the most significant eternal cleansing that you could have, the blood of Jesus. And so remember, it is by the blood of Jesus that I am purified and cleansed and then come and take that bread that represents his body and break it. And that was already broken in the little bowl for us and dip it in there. And as it goes into your body, remember that that is the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from the inside out. He really purifies you. He really cleanses you. And then together, let's worship and glorify the person of Jesus. Amen.